Savitri, Book 10 The Book of the Double Twilight Canto 2 The Gospel of Death and Vanity of the Ideal This is Part 3. It's on pages 612 through 614. Savitri has been hearing death's arguments She has been hearing death's descriptions of human love based on vital life impulses and emotional satisfactions. Now she is going to respond to death's claims. Death tried unsuccessfully to master Savitri, to control her, to make her turn back to live the rest of her life without her eternal mate. Death said he was all-powerful, and if she didn't turn back, terrible things would happen to her. But Savitri knew the truth. She did not turn back, and nothing terrible happened to her. So it was all falsehood. But at the same time, death spoke in the unkind ways and said the unkind things that caused people to give up wanting to go ahead with life. So for many people... These falsehoods are accepted as the truth, and this aspect of the death process is successful with them. But not with Savitri. She has been working hard at her own yoga practice. She has realized her soul, and she has attained cosmic consciousness, and she is able to receive what comes down into her being from above. The only effect of Savitri's being swamped by the darkness of death's path through the dark unconscious levels of the universal creation has been to intensify Savitri's own yogic work in herself. She was able to receive the immortal light which is always hidden in all darkness, and it helped her to clear out more of her own darkness and her own ignorance. This also lightened the darkness on death's dark road. Savitri's consciousness became filled with the lovely beginnings of ideal life right there in the middle of death's road of darkness. The changing of this darkness into something slightly lighter made death change the way he spoke to Savitri. He had to speak to her in a more polite way and he had to use the tools of reason, and he had to use real examples. But he still did not speak the real truth. First, death attacked the beautiful ideals by saying they had no reality. He said that Savitri created them herself out of her needs and desires. He said her immortal love was created out of her body's physical needs and her wish for companionship and people to help her. Last time we saw that death said, What is this love thy thought has deified? This sacred legend and immortal myth. It is a conscious yearning of thy flesh. It is a glorious burning of thy nerves a rose of dream splendor petaling thy mind, a great red rapture and torture of thy heart. 
a sudden transfiguration of thy days, it passes, and the world is as before. Then death told Savitri that even if Sachivan had lived, love would have died anyway. He gave examples of unhappy relationships which people experience when the relationship is based only on the vital, which is not acting under the influence of the soul's higher qualities. So now, what death is saying seems more believable and even reasonable. But he is trying to destroy Savitri's marriage. Then death told Savitri to place her mental knowledge above her heart's love. He said, Chastise thy heart with knowledge, unhood to see thy nature raised into clear living heights, thy heaven bird's view from unimagined peaks. He tried to get Savitri to believe that her mind was more valuable than her soul. And of course, Death is always saying there is no real soul. It looks like Sri Aurobindo feels that it's very important for us to know about the value of real love and marriage based on high soul qualities. We already saw that Savitri had to reject this idea back in Book 6. Savitri's mother told her the same thing because she heard that Satchavan was destined to die one year after their marriage. She was speaking about concern for her daughter's welfare. And of course, Savitri's mother did not know what the real relationship was that Savitri had with Satchavan. And when Savitri told her, then she could not say anything more. Sri Aurobindo speaks about the truth of the marriage relationship. He speaks about the relationship of a partnership for life between a man and a woman in Book 4, Canto 3. Savitri has grown up into such a beautiful and conscious person that she's beyond all the people around her. Nobody comes who is worthy to be her mate. One day, her father, King Ashwapati, tells her that she should go out into the wide world to look for her life partner. Sri Aurobindo tells us that this is the true thing for Savitri by saying that these thoughts did not come from the king's mortal mind, his lower mind, the mind which makes up stories for us. And these thoughts did not come from his small vital wants. They come from a high source which moves him. When the king tells Savitri to go out and find her mate, he says her mate is out there, waiting for her. Then he describes the true life between real partners in a marriage based on the soul. Sri Aurobindo writes about the king's inspiration to advise his daughter by saying, An impromptu from the deeper sight within Thoughts rose in him that knew not their own scope. Then to those large brooding depths whence love regarded him across the straits of mind, he spoke in sentences from the unseen heights. For the hidden prompters of our speech sometimes can use the formulas of a moment's mood 
to weigh unconscious lips with words from fate. A casual passing phrase can change our life. O Spirit, traveler of eternity, who camest from the immortal spaces here, armed for the splendid hazard of thy life to set thy conquering foot on chance and time, the moon, shut in her halo, dreams like thee. A mighty presence still defends thy frame. Perhaps the heavens guard thee for some great soul. Thy fate, thy work, are kept somewhere afar. Thy spirit came not down a star alone. Depart where love and destiny call your charm. Venture through the deep world to find thy mate. For somewhere, on the longing breast of earth, thy unknown lover waits for thee, the unknown. Thy soul has strength and needs no other guide than one who burns within thy bosom's powers. There shall draw near to meet thy approaching steps the second self for whom thy nature asks. He who shall walk until thy body's end, a close-bound traveler pacing with thy pace, the lyrist of thy soul's most intimate chords who shall give voice to what in thee is mute. Then shall you grow like vibrant kindred harps, one in the beats of difference and delight, responsive in divine and equal strains, discovering new notes of the eternal theme. One force shall be your mover and your guide. One light shall be around you and within. Hand in strong hand, Confront heaven's question, life. Challenge the ordeal of the immense disguise. Ascend from nature to divinity's heights. Face the high gods crowned with felicity. Then meet a greater god, thyself beyond time. Here at the end of the king's speech, we see that marriage is also a yoga of spiritual realization. And we saw that also in Book 7, when Savitri had to do yoga to find her soul to continue her life with her husband. In Book 5, the Book of Love, Sri Aurobindo makes it clear that marriage and a good relationship with the person of the opposite sex is a true destiny for human beings. He starts the Book of Love, the first lines in Canto I, by writing, But now the destined spot and hour were close, unknowing she had neared her nameless goal. For though a dress of blind and devious chance is laid upon the work of all-wise fate, our acts interpret an omniscient force, that dwells in the compelling stuff of things. And nothing happens in the cosmic play, but at its time and in its foreseen place. 
Then Sri Aurobindo continues his explanation of the way our destiny to have a partner works. He shows us this when Savitri and Sachavan first see each other. He writes, Here first she met, on the uncertain earth, the one for whom her heart had come so far. For suddenly, her heart looked out at him, the passionate seeing used thought cannot match, and knew one nearer than its own close strings. All in a moment was surprised and seized. All in inconscient ecstasy lay wrapped, or under imagination's colored lids, held up in a large mirror air of dream, broke forth in flame to recreate the world. And in that flame, to new things she was born. Her soul flung wide its doors to this new sun. An alchemy worked. The transmutation came. The missioned face had wrought the master's spell. In the nameless light of two approaching eyes, a swift and fated turning of her days appeared and stretched to a gleam of unknown worlds. Then, trembling with the mystic shock, her heart moved in her breast and cried out like a bird who hears his mate upon a neighboring bough. Her inner vision still remembering, knew a forehead that wore the crown of all her past. Two eyes, her constant and eternal stars, comrade and sovereign eyes that claimed her soul, lids known through many lives, large frames of love. He met in her regard his future's gaze, a promise and a presence, and a fire. This golden figure, given to his grasp, hid in its breast the key to all his aims. Savitri's consciousness is developed enough to know they were together in many past lives. Sachavan looks at Savitri, and he sees them together, not in the past, in past lives, but living together and sharing the same future in this life. She is his Shakti, his power, and his support for all that he wants to do. Then Sri Aurobindo explains to us that it is the immortal part of us, our soul, that has the consciousness to know this. Our soul is the Supreme's love which created the two soulmates. It is helping them. It is guiding them. Sri Aurobindo writes, On the dumb bosom of this oblivious globe, although as unknown beings we seem to meet, our lives are not aliens, nor as strangers join, moved to each other by a causeless force. The soul can recognize its answering soul across dividing time. And, on life's roads, absorbed, rapt traveler, turning, it recovers familiar splendors in an unknown face. And, touched by the warning finger of swift love, 
it thrills again to an immortal joy, wearing a mortal body for delight. There is a power within that knows beyond our knowings. We are greater than our thoughts, and sometimes earth unveils that vision here. To live, to love, are signs of infinite things. Love is a glory from eternity's spheres. These knew each other, though in forms thus strange. Although to sight unknown, though life and mind had altered to hold a new significance, these bodies summed the drift of numberless births, and the spirit to the spirit was the same. Amazed by a joy for which they had waited long, the lovers met upon their different paths. Travelers across the limitless plains of time, together drawn from fate-led journeyings in the self-closed solitude of their human past to a swift, rapturous dream of future joy and the unexpected present of these eyes. When Savitri finally faces death, she knows the truth of her life after going through this experience. She knows the truth after living with Sachivan for one year. Sri Aurobindo begins this part of Canto II with her reply to death's statements about her love being a creation of her body and her vital. He writes, But Savitri replied to the dark power, A dangerous music now thou findst, O death, melting thy speech into harmonious pain, and flutest alluringly to tired hopes, thy falsehoods mingled with sad strains of truth, but I forbid thy voice to slay my soul. My love is not a hunger of the heart. My love is not a craving of the flesh. It came to me from God. To God returns. Even in all that life and man have marred, a whisper of divinity still is heard. A breath is felt from the eternal spheres. Allowed by heaven, and wonderful to man, a sweet fire rhythm of passion chants to love. Savitri tells death that at its highest, the passion of love is the voice of the eternal ecstasy. She also tells death that she and Sachivan are eternal soulmates coming together life after life. She says, for we were man and woman from the first, the twin souls born from one undying fire. Did not he dawn on me in other stars? How has he, through the thickets of the world, pursued me like a lion in the night, and come upon me suddenly in the ways, and seized me with his glorious golden leap? Unsatisfied, he yearned for me through time, sometimes with wrath, and sometimes with sweet peace, desiring me since first the world began. Canto 
I, too, have found him charmed in lovely forms and run delighted to his distant voice and pressed to him past many dreadful bars. Sri Aurobindo explained in his author's note at the beginning of Savitri that his book is based on a Vedic legend about Mary love conquering death. The fact of marriage itself as a divine force of human life which supports and upholds human progress underlies Savitri's divine task. The marriage relationship should be a divine relationship. People have their beginning from birth in the atmosphere of the married home. How very important it is for a newly arrived being to be in the atmosphere of love, in the atmosphere of care and respect and cooperation, of uncomplaining devotion and service. In other words, a psychic atmosphere, a soul-based atmosphere. This prepares the newly arrived being for their own relationships in later life with their future partner. The attention and help we receive from our own parents is itself colored by how they feel and relate to each other. These high principles are for both the wife and mother and the husband and father. Last time, we had mothers teaching that the relationship of love that we have with each other is, in reality, the very being of the love which created us. This love is always seeking to express itself through us in our love for each other. This is the energy that should power a marriage to make it the way marriage should be. We've also seen in Mother's teachings about human love that it's not usual for romantic love to be real soul-based love. It is hard work to realize our soul and to have an organized, functioning psychic being with soul consciousness active in our mind, our vital, and even in our physical bodies. We see that Sri Aurobindo has put so much emphasis on the issue of marriage in Savitri. We see death going on, attacking it over and over again. We see Savitri's responses. It's worthwhile looking at marriage down through history. It's worthwhile seeing what has happened to marriage down through the ages. Throughout history, the reasons for marriage have been deformed by men. Marriage is constantly changing. And now, in very recent years, it has evolved rather quickly. As recently as 100 years ago, a woman was considered to be the property of her family. And when she got married, she became the property of her husband and the property of her husband's family. A woman could not inherit money. The only money she could get was a dowry that she could take with her when she got married. A woman could not vote. She had no voice in her environment outside her family. If she never married, her immediate family had to take care of her. If she married and her husband passed away, her children, or her husband's family had to take care of her. Therefore, 
the woman was expected to work for the family that kept her. She took her husband's surname, she bore his children, and her children took his surname. Until very recently, marriages were made to build and keep the family fortune and the family social position. Everything was owned by the man. Today, this does not happen anymore in Western countries. This custom is also in the process of change in the East. We have seen a few lines taken from the Book of Love which show us Sri Aurobindo's position about the truth that exists in a relationship founded on the high qualities of love coming when we live in our soul consciousness. These qualities are tenderness, care, understanding, giving, love, patience, generosity. But in the past, for a woman to get a husband, these things were far down the list of marriage arrangements which the woman could expect when she entered a marriage. All through history, we have examples in story and song and in theater and film of the lower qualities coming from vital desires and mental ideas in romance and marriage. There are no examples of true soul-based marriages. We can go all the way back to Shakespeare, the great bard. He was considered to be one of the greatest storytellers in history. His comedies and tragedies and historical plays are still entertaining people today. He wrote in the 16th century, 500 years ago. Many of his plays are about love. One of his best-known comedies is the comedy of The Taming of the Shrew. It was written between 1584 and 1592. We can see the way marriages took place in Shakespeare's day. We can also see what kind of behavior was valued in the marriage relationship, what the man could do, and what the woman could not do. Marriage in Shakespeare's society, as in all societies of the day, was first and foremost a financial affair. Even if the couple were in love, if the girl did not have a proper dowry that pleased the boy's family, and the boy did not have enough money to please the girl's family, they could not marry. Men had all the money and all the power. The Taming of the Shrew was accepted and enjoyed in Shakespeare's world. The husband cruelly mistreats the wife to break her spirit. A man wanted a wife who would be ruled by him and behave herself properly. And most women were forced into this kind of relationship. Here we have Shakespeare's comedy of a woman no one can control, a shrew, and a man who thinks only of how much money he will get because he knows he can control the woman completely. The Taming of the Shrew is about Petruchio, a wealthy man from Verona who wants a wealthy wife. He comes to Padua, looking for her. This is all he cares about. He meets a friend there who tells him about Catherine, the daughter of a very wealthy merchant. She is very rich, but ill-favored, because she is a bad-tempered, uncontrollable shrew. Petruchio's reply tells us his aims. Shakespeare wrote his plays in a poetic form, called iambic pentameter. 
This is the same poetic form that Sri Aurobindo uses to write Savitri. So we hear a similar rhythm in Petruccio's speech, as he says, As wealth is the burden of my wooing dance, be she as foul as was Florentius' love, as old as Sibyl, and as cursed and shrewd as Socrates' Xantippe, or worse, she moves me not, or not removes, at least, affection's edge in me, were she as rough as are the swelling Adriatic seas. I come to wive it wealthily in Padua. If wealthily, then happily in Padua. Catherine is forced to marry Petruccio against her wishes. In order to tame Catherine, Petruccio starves her. He refuses to allow her to eat their meals. Then he refuses to allow her to sleep at night. He behaves like a crazy man. Finally, she is tamed and does everything he says. If he says white is black, she says white is black, even though she can see that it is white. Comedy is often used to express problems in a culture or a society. There must have been conflicts in many of the marriages when they were arranged only for financial gain. Perhaps in Shakespeare's day, the husbands and the unmarried men in the audience enjoyed watching a man who got a lot of money with his wife and could mistreat her to get her to completely behave and to completely do whatever he wanted. The Taming of the Shrew was quite a popular comedy when Shakespeare wrote it. It is still performed today. As a social commentary, it speaks a lot of truth which people should learn from in order to have better lives. Let's take a look at one more world-famous writer who wrote about the marriage customs of her day. This is Jane Austen. Jane Austen is considered to be the finest writer in the English language. She wrote seven books in the early 1800s in England, over 200 years ago. All of her books were about marriage and romance. When you read Jane Austen's books, you see that money and social position and refined cultural behavior were the main purposes of marriage in the popular thinking of the time. The actual relationship between husband and wife came afterwards. To get married well and to be out of her family was the principal object of a young girl's life. A woman's marriage was her main job and her destiny. Otherwise, life completely passed her by. A girl's mother worked hard to find a rich husband for her daughter. Jane Austen's most famous book is Pride and Prejudice. Here are the first lines of the book. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune, must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered as the rightful property of some one or other of their daughters. 
Thus begins the story of the marriage of three of the five daughters of the Bennett family. Their mother's only aim in life is to get her daughters married off. Their father is a landed gentleman, but he has very little fortune, so there is very little dowry to give with his daughters in marriage. His property must pass to a male heir. This is the provision of inheritance in his family, and he has no sons. Pride and Prejudice is very well written, very entertaining, and it also has a spiritual message because the main lines of the book show how the two eldest daughters are developed women with good minds and pure vital beings. They have wisdom and beauty and understanding. Their behavior is refined and cultured, but they have almost no dowry. Therefore, their chances of good marriage are poor. As the book proceeds, they fall in love with wealthy men of equal cultural development. These men are sufficiently developed to recognize the value of good character and wisdom and higher love as being worth more than money. At the very end of the book, they marry these developed women out of real love. Almost every person in the book is interested in the different marriages. Every friend and family member schemes and plans to either make the marriages happen or to prevent them from happening. We can see how important marriage is in society in those times. We can also see how the family members and the friends of these two sisters either want these marriages or want to prevent them for their own selfish reasons. Mr. Collins, the cousin who will inherit the Bennett estate, pays the Bennett family a visit. He is looking to marry one of their daughters. He decides to marry the second eldest daughter, not because he loves her, but because he thinks she can never refuse him because he is to inherit her father's estate. He thinks that she has such a small dowry that she will be happy to marry him and he feels he's doing a noble thing by helping the Bennett family in this way. Mr. Collins is a very stupid person, and the second daughter knows that she can never like him or respect him, so she refuses to marry him. Her mother has a great interest in this. If one of her daughters marries Mr. Collins, she will automatically be safe if her husband dies before she does, and all she wants is marriage. She's furious with her daughter for refusing Mr. Collins' proposal, but the daughter sticks to her position. Other kinds of marriage are explored in the book. One young sister, who is foolish and gross in her ways and very headstrong, elopes with a man of no fortune and bad character. She lives with him before he is forced to marry her. Actually, he is bribed with money to marry her. Living without wedlock is the worst possible thing a woman can do to herself and to the rest of her family in those days. Today we live in a world that accepts people who live together without marriage, and we can hardly conceive of how terrible it was for a woman in those days. She would be lost forever, and her whole family would partake of her disgrace 
unless she married her lover. Jane Austen also brings us the marriage of a young woman who marries only to get a comfortable position in life and who places no value on anything higher. Jane Austen's rendition of this is so brilliant that it is the classic statement on the subject. Nobody could say it better. This young lady is Charlotte Lucas, a family friend who deliberately sets out to attract Mr. Collins. She does this after he has been refused by the second sister, who happens to be her personal friend. We hear Charlotte's idea of what all marriage will be like a little earlier in the book. She is trying to tell one of the older, wise and beautiful sisters how to marry. She says, There is so much of gratitude or vanity in almost every attachment that it's not safe to leave any to itself. We can all begin freely. A slight preference is natural enough, but there are very few of us who have heart enough to be really in love without encouragement. In nine cases out of ten, a woman had better show more affection than she feels. When she is secure of him, there will be leisure for falling in love as much as she chooses. Happiness in marriage is entirely a matter of chance. If the dispositions of the parties are ever so well known to each other, or ever so similar beforehand, it does not advance their felicity in the least. They always grow sufficiently unlike afterwards to have their share of vexation, and it is better to know as little as possible of the defects of the person with whom you are to pass your life. Charlotte sounds just like death here. She says marriage is based on the vital, and it will never remain happy. Charlotte follows her own good advice, and she successfully catches Mr. Collins. Here is Jane Austen's fabulous relation of the thoughts of Charlotte and her family when she does. Charlotte's mother begins to calculate how much longer Mr. Bennett will live, how many years, before Charlotte and Mr. Collins will move into his estate. And Jane Austen writes, The whole family, in short, were properly overjoyed on the occasion. The younger girls formed hopes of coming out a year or two sooner than they might otherwise have done, and the boys were relieved of their apprehension of Charlotte's dying an old maid. Charlotte herself was tolerably composed. She had gained her point and had time to consider of it. Her reflections were in general satisfactory. Mr. Collins, to be sure, was neither sensible nor agreeable. His society was irksome, and his attachment to her must be imaginary. But still, he would be her husband. Without thinking highly either of men or of matrimony, marriage had always been her object. It was the only honorable provision for well-educated young women of small fortune, and however uncertain of giving happiness, must be their pleasantest preservative from want. This preservative she had now obtained, and at the age of twenty-seven, without ever having been handsome, she felt all the good luck of it. People may not be marrying for money and social position today, 
but some of these other things do still exist. For our modern times, we can look at one single line of dialogue from the Hollywood musical movie Guys and Dolls, which came out in 1955. Guys and Dolls is all about two very different couples who are not suited to each other, but who are drawn together out of love. One of the male stars says to one of the female stars, My daddy told me that no matter who you marry, you wake up the next morning married to someone else. Isn't this exactly what Charlotte Lucas says in Jane Austen's book in the beginning of the 1800s? If we measure the treatment of Catherine in The Taming of the Shrew by today's customs and laws, any woman who is treated like Catherine could go to court and her husband would be convicted of spousal abuse. If someone married only for money and social position today, people would not approve. Society would look down on such a move. Mother spoke about romance in marriage and partnership relationships. She was way ahead of her time. She understood the difficulties of a woman being forced into a marriage and having to remain in it. She did not feel that a formal registered marriage was absolutely necessary. She spoke constantly about the nature of relationships based on the vital and how we must change all of that into soul-based relationships. In the beginning of the ashram, which was created for the purpose of doing Sri Aurobindo's yoga, both Sri Aurobindo and Mother often told people whether they were suited for ashram life without marriage, whether they should marry and not take ashram life, and whether their marriage would hinder their progress in the practice of Sri Aurobindo's yoga. In the early days, no married couples could live together in the ashram. We have the story of how Mother told Shobha Mitra that she should not marry if she wanted to follow the yogic path to realization. Shobha had been coming to the ashram with her mother for the public darshans from the age of nine years old. She came to the ashram when she was 16 for the 1950 November puja holidays. In those days, all marriages in India were arranged with a suitable dowry for the woman. Before she left in November, Shobha went for an interview with Mother, and she was weeping at the thought of returning home to Calcutta. Here is what Shobha wrote in her book. Mother kissed me on the forehead and said, Don't cry, you shall return here one day. If your father tries to force you into marriage, send me a telegram. I will make all the arrangements for your coming here. On the same subject, Mother further said, Don't get married. You are very sensitive by nature, and you are very sincere in your feelings. If you get entangled in this life of marriage, it would be almost impossible to come out of it. That's why you should not get married, for then you will be able to walk on the path of sadhana. This is indeed your life, my dear child. This is your life. Don't get married. Shobhamitra told her own mother about this, who said that she would come to live with her in the ashram. They returned to Calcutta, but returned to the ashram soon after that, for Sri Aurobindo's Mahasamadhi 
in December of 1950. When they went home again, Shoba's father had already fixed up her marriage. Shoba's mother supported her decision not to marry, but nothing they could say or do stopped Shoba's father from going ahead with all the marriage arrangements for months. It caused a lot of dispute and unhappiness between them. Shoba was unable to send mother the telegram which mother had asked for. In her book, Shoba wrote, Then one day, in the midst of all these arguments and disquiet, my brother Arun came and handed me an envelope. He said he had received this from our neighbor Satyada, who asked him to give it to me. On opening the envelope, I discovered it was a note from Nolinida addressed to me. Dear Shoba, the mother has asked you to come at once. The mother sends you her blessing, Nolinida. Then Shoba and her mother secretly prepared to go to the ashram. Her father and her brothers were against it, but a cousin got the tickets and made all the arrangements and escorted them to the ashram. Her father stood helplessly at the door when they left. So did Shoba's brothers. They could make no move to stop them from leaving. When they arrived in the ashram, all arrangements had been made, and they were given a large and beautiful house on the seafront where they lived for many years. The next morning they went for Mother's darshan, and Mother said to Shoba, So, do you have come here for good? And Shoba said, Yes, Mother, I have come for good. Before Shoba passed away, after living her whole life in the ashram, in a video interview, she spoke of this, and she said, I want the young girls who hear this to know that I believe I made the right choice. We have a story from the other side, a story of mother telling people that they were more fit for marriage than for ashram yogic life. Surendranath Jauhar wrote in his book, My Mother, about mother's instructions and help regarding his youngest daughter, Purnima. All of his children came to the ashram at a young age, before there was a school. They stayed in the very first school boarding house. Surendranath wrote this about Purnima. When she was perhaps past 17 years of age, the mother wrote to me, Purnima may be called back to Delhi to study there. She is not fit for yogic life. She is more fit for worldly life and in the course of time may be married. Perhaps she very much likes to be in foreign countries. Purnima went to school in Delhi, finally receiving a master's degree in English. Surendranath writes, It took me several years to find a suitable match for her, and it was only a miracle and the mother's grace that the person was found who was a businessman in Germany. Within a day, the man was taken to the ashram by air and produced before the mother. Mother approved of the match and put a gold ring on Kevi's finger. Within a week, the marriage was solemnized in Delhi. We are truly fortunate that we have Sri Aurobindo's writings in Savitri. 
He enables us to look beyond society's past and present levels of realization in the areas of human relationships and marriage. Savitri's wisdom and the strength of her position come not only from her yoga, they also come from her constant experience of living with her own soulmate and being conscious of him and their oneness on every level of her being. This is something which everyone who has this conscious soulmate experience understands. Savitri knows without any doubt that the love which she feels for Sachivan is eternal. Out of this consciousness, she speaks of their past together, and she can say clearly that Sativan is everything for her. She also says it in Book 10, Canto 3, after she tells death about God's glory and the hidden bliss in everything. She is speaking out of her own high realizations. She tells death that in the future the immortal spirit shall manifest what is already in the heart. And she says, All shall be seized, transcendent, there shall kiss, casting their veils before the marriage fire, the eternal bridegroom and the eternal bride. Then they move on. At this point in Savitri's speech, the darkness of death's path becomes a half-light, and Savitri's spirit draws back into a deep room in meditation's house. Sri Aurobindo writes, For only there could dwell the soul's firm truth, imperishable, a tongue of sacrifice, it flamed unquenched upon the central hearth where burns for the high house-lord and his mate the homestead's sentinel and witness fire from which the altars of the gods are lit. In Book 6, Canto 1, Savitri goes back to tell her parents that she has found her mate. Narad, the sage and singer of the gods, is waiting for her there. He is singing to Savitri's parents about the divine spouse. Sri Aurobindo writes, He sang to them of the lotus heart of love, with all its thousand luminous buds of truth, which, quivering, sleeps, veiled by apparent things. It trembles at each touch, it strives to wake, and one day it shall hear a blissful voice, and in the garden of the spouse shall bloom when she is seized by her discovered Lord. Savitri joyously proclaims that Sachavan is the Lord of her being when Sri Aurobindo ends this part of the canto that we have today. Savitri says, If yet there is a happier, greater God, let him first wear the face of Sachavan, and let his soul be one with him I love. So let him seek me that I may desire for only one heart beats within my breast, and one God sits there throned. Advance, O death, beyond the phantom beauty of this world, for of its citizens I am not one. I cherish God the fire, not God the dream. 
The Book of the Double Twilight The Gospel of Death and Vanity of the Ideal But Savitri replied to the dark power, A dangerous music now thou findst, O death, Melting thy speech into harmonious pain, And flutest alluringly to tired hopes, Thy falsehoods mingled with sad strains of truth, But I forbid thy voice to slay my soul. My love is not a hunger of the heart. My love is not a craving of the flesh. It came to me from God, to God returns. Even in all that life and man have marred, a whisper of divinity still is heard. A breath is felt from the eternal spheres. Allowed by heaven and wonderful to man, a sweet fire rhythm of passion chants to love. There is a hope in its wild, infinite cry. It rings with callings from forgotten heights. And when its strains are hushed to high-winged souls in their empyrean, its burning breath survives beyond. The rapturous core of suns that flame forever pure in skies unseen. A voice of the eternal ecstasy. One day, I shall behold my great sweet world put off the dire disguises of the gods, unveil from terror and disrobe from sin. Appeased, we shall draw near our mother's face. We shall cast our candid souls upon her lap. Then shall we clasp the ecstasy we chase. Then shall we shudder with the long-sought God. Then shall we find heaven's unexpected strain. Not only is there hope for Godhead's pure, the violent and darkened deities leaped down from the one breast in rage to find what the white gods had missed. They too are safe. A mother's eyes are on them, and her arms stretched out in love desire her rebel sons. One who came, love, lover, and beloved eternal, built himself a wondrous field and wove the measures of a marvelous dance. There, in its circles and its magic turns, attracted he arrives, repelled he flees. In the wild, devious promptings of his mind, he tastes the honey of tears and puts off joy repenting and has laughter, and has wrath, and both are a broken music of the soul which seeks out reconciled its heavenly rhyme. Ever he comes to us across the years, bearing a new sweet face that is the old. His bliss laughs to us, or it calls concealed, like a far-heard, unseen, entrancing flute from moonlit branches in the throbbing woods tempting our angry search and passionate pain. Disguised the lover seeks and draws our souls. He named himself for me, Guru Satyavan, for we were man and woman from the first, the twin souls born from one undying fire. Did he not dawn on me and other stars? How has he, through the thickets of the world, pursued me, like a lion in the night, and come upon me suddenly in the ways, and seized me 
with his glorious golden leap. Unsatisfied, he yearned for me through time, sometimes with wrath and sometimes with sweet peace, desiring me since first the world began. He rose like a wild wave out of the floods and dragged me helpless into seas of bliss. Out of my curtained past, his arms arrive. They have touched me like the soft, persuading wind. They have plucked me like a glad and trembling flower and clasped me, happily burned, in ruthless flame. I, too, have found him charmed in lovely forms and run delighted to his distant voice and pressed to him past many dreadful bars. If there is a yet happier, greater God, let him first wear the face of Sachivan, and let his soul be one with him I love. So let him seek me, that I may desire. For only one heart beats within my breast, and one God sits there throned. Advance, O death, beyond the phantom beauty of this world, for of its citizens I am not one. I cherish God the fire, not God the dream. <laughs>